This morning we're doing things just a little bit differently, which is, of course, exactly what you want to hear when you show up at a church. Uh, normally what I would do is I would read from, uh, read from our passage and then go through it bit by bit. But this morning, uh, realizing that at our church we haven't had a lot of Easter services, we have the privilege of being able to share in those with local churches. But for some of us, if we can't make it to those, it's... Uh, really an unfortunate thing that we don't have time to be able to read through the story of, of what happened on Easter and the things leading up to it, those things which form the foundation of our faith. So this morning we have a longer piece of Scripture, but as uh, any good seminary would teach you, uh, you don't just read a whole bunch at one time because people get bored. And the worst thing you can ever do with Scripture is make people bored with it. So this morning, we're going to break it into a few pieces, but we are going to look at what happened uh, in that specific period of time of Christ's uh, going to the cross, of his dying on the cross, and rising again. Because that's what we're here for on Easter. We're here to be reminded of what God has done for us, to be reminded of what it is that has changed everything and why it is we are who we are, and you know the list goes on. So, this morning, without any further ado, uh, I'll be reading uh, from Matthew chapter 27 and 28, if that gives you any indication of what you're in for. But I've limited it to just, the, just Matthew, which, <laughs> that's, that's, so you're safe there. But, either way, starting in Matthew chapter 27, we'll read a few verses and then we'll talk about it. Starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor... And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, he was, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroyed Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged, sorry, scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. First and foremost, um, you'd all pronounce that word wrong too. <laughs> You can scour something, but when the G's there, it's scourge. Either way, we're going to move on from that. I make mistakes, you make mistakes. That's part of being human beings. Now, this first part of this narrative is incredibly interesting to me because it's, it's building up. Now, you have to read the rest of Matthew, and I'm not going to do that because that was the first two years of my time here was, was reading through Matthew week after week. And it's good to be able to read through a book like that. But this morning, what you have to understand is that there have been a lot of things building up to this moment. Specifically, uh, if you want to talk about Ash Wednesday, uh, that's great. It's uh, usually those ashes that are coming after Palm Sunday, which would have been last week. And so you get that thing where kids come and they wave their palm branches. And it's, it's looking back to that time where Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which is a symbol of him coming as a triumphant king bringing peace. Now, of course, after that, he goes into the temple and he starts messing things up. And then he goes in and, and these religious leaders see what he's doing and they go to stop him and they get befuddled by him. And it goes on and on and on and on until there's a point 
where this Jesus guy just can't be stopped. Uh, Everywhere he goes, people are flocking around him. He teaches as if he's the Messiah. He's healing people. He's he's helping people see. He's helping people hear. He's healing the cripples. And everywhere he goes, this this mythos of him, these stories about the things he can do and the things that he says is building and building. And suddenly the respect for those religious leaders is dwindling because, look, these people are still sick when you're here, but he comes into town and all of these things happen. And for those religious leaders, this becomes a scary thing and an intimidating thing. Their whole source of power, their understanding of the way things work is rooted in the way things are. So when Jesus comes in and He starts to do things that they're not doing and say things that they're not saying, or worse, He criticizes them in front of the crowds. There's something that starts to happen and they get angrier and angrier and nothing they do seems to stop him until it gets to a point where they realize the only way we're going to get rid of this guy is to kill him. So, of course, we have those events leading up to Easter. You have uh, Good Friday, which is where Jesus sits down with his disciples and he takes a meal with them. And after the meal, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and to focus on the things that are to come and to seek God's guidance and strength where he's betrayed and arrested. And, of course, there's that event with the guy with the sword and the ear. And um, it's all very exciting, except Jesus doesn't think it's really what should have happened. So (laughs) there's that. But then Jesus is arrested. And now what we're missing in this portion is that there's already been a trial, a trial of those religious leaders within Jerusalem. Jesus didn't stand a chance. There's a few false, uh, false witnesses who say certain things, and then Jesus doesn't really speak against those things, and so he's condemned as a blasphemer for saying that he can forgive sins. They spit on him, they beat him, and then something happens because Jew sorry, the Jewish state within Israel is captive under Rome. So they have to go to the governor. If you look to some of the other gospel accounts, it mentions specifically under the law, they're not allowed to put anyone to death. So they have a problem. We can't do it. So what do we do? The simple answer is you go to the higher authority. And when your higher authority is a bloodthirsty conquering nation... You might just have a chance. So they go to Pilate. And they start to talk to him. And and, uh, so they accuse him, say he's he's a blasphemer, he's, he's doing things he shouldn't do, or worse, he claims to be our king. So Pilate starts to to say, what is it that you've done? So this whole section, I want to say, is is difficult in that it's hard to read through this and, and think to yourself, how are these people so, so blind? How is it they don't see what they're doing? How is it they don't see who Jesus is or, or what he's doing, why he's doing it? They, they take him to Pilate. Pilate asks questions. He's trying to figure out what is it that he's supposed to be guilty of because I can't figure anything out. He doesn't admit to any crimes. Even the crimes he's accused of aren't really crimes. There's nothing that I can really do. And he tries to release them, but it doesn't work. So let's take a look at this case for a minute. Jesus is first falsely accused, which there's a statement in this section uh, that is, it should be something that, that stands out. They shout, His blood be on us and on our children. This is after Pilate has said, look, I don't want to put him to death, but they shout, crucify him. And a riot starts to to happen, and he realizes, look, if I uh, let this thing get out of control, um, I'm going to have problems. Pilate's job, if you remember, was to keep order in this particular region of Rome's empire. If he can't keep order, he doesn't really have a purpose. And with Rome, if you don't have a purpose... (laughs) you tend to not exist very long. So it's in Pilate's best interest to keep order in this particular section of the empire. So he gives in. But he does something. He washes his hands and says, look, his blood is not on my hands. I am not sanctioning this. I am not doing this. This is not a part of what I want to do. 
I am not guilty of killing an innocent man. And they respond in that intriguing way when they say his blood be on us and on our children. Now, first and foremost, that's supposed to be an assurance to Pilate that he is, in fact, guilty. If you're to say, his blood be on me, what you're saying, in effect, is if he's not guilty, we're fine. If he is guilty, it's not on you. It's on us. His blood be on us and our children. They were invoking a curse on themselves to say, look, we are so sure that this guy is guilty, we wouldn't be moving forward if it wasn't. And if, it, if he's not guilty, look, we will bear the burden of that. Pilate didn't see a fault after questioning Jesus. The people didn't offer any real legal fault, even though um, there is in a few other places mention of uprising and claiming he's king. Pilate is acting in order to stop a riot, not exactly to exact justice, and so he claims no responsibility. The people claim all responsibility. Now, we do have to say, even though Pilate said, look, my hands are clean, I have no part in this, it was still his soldiers that carried out the execution. It was still his soldiers that flogged him, that beat him, that dressed him up and mocked him. It was his people, but what he was saying is, look, I'm not doing this because it's part of my role. I'm doing this, as you well realize, because... It's to keep you all pacified. Pilate would not oblige if his hand were not forced, but the Jews wanted him dead and could not condemn him to death. It was a loophole, you see. They couldn't kill him. Pilate didn't want to kill him, but this is a way where everyone could be happy and accept blame where blame needed to be. So, his blood be on us and our children. It's amazing to me that they would call and give so many opportunities to go the, another direction. Whether it was, um, if you, depending on which gospel account you read, there's actually multiple trials and multiple times that Jesus was passed off. Uh, you could talk about the account where those religious leaders condemned him without a fair trial. That was one. Uh, you also had where uh, Pilate talked to him, realized he actually should have just gone to Herod, so he sends him to Herod. Herod, by the way, doesn't really like that he sent him that way, talks to him a little bit, then sends him back to Pilate. Pilate doesn't know what to do with him, so he talks to him again. Uh, You can only have him beaten so many times because you can beat people to death, so uh, they didn't do that again. Instead, it just went through this process of, of each person trying to say, look, I don't want to be responsible for this guy. I don't understand why they're so upset with him, except... If we don't kill him, there's going to be problems. And yet that line, his blood be on us and our children. If you take that line out of context, I think I would say the exact same thing about Jesus' blood. Because I know what it is. You know, Savior's blood, may, may it be on myself, may it be on my family, may, may his saving blood be on us. But that's not what they were saying. What they were saying is, he is not the sent one from God. He is not the Messiah. He is a blasphemer. He is a liar. Put him to death. And if there's any guilt, it falls on us. And they shouted it out because they wanted him to die that badly. And so he offers another opportunity. Barabbas, who's not a nice guy. It mentions in some places that he's a robber and others that he's an insurrectionist. He's someone who takes. He's someone who fights. He's someone who causes violence. He's a known criminal. And Pilate puts a known criminal alongside someone who's accused of something, but he finds no fault. And they shout and cry out for this Barabbas. And when he says, fine, I'll I'll release him because it's one thing that I do to keep the peace, but what should I do with this Jesus? What should I do with this person that (laughs) I don't know what to do with? And they shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so with no other option, he hands them over to be crucified. Story continues in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. 
And they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they'd crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now that's a line that gets me. Truly this was a son of God. Certain translations will have it say truly this was a son of God. And from the Roman perspective, that was saying a lot. Now they simply adopted those religious cultures that they had absorbed as they, they conquered and as they absorbed other cultures and other nations. They, they modified, they adapted those other religious figures and deities. So for them, demigods were a thing. For them, uh, those, those gods walking among men was a real reality. Something interesting happens when Jesus is handed over and without any other crime, what these soldiers mock him for is something he never really claimed to be. And that was their king. Now, it's true that Jesus does come, have, come as king. And for most of those who were expecting a Messiah, they were expecting a conquering king. Yet Jesus didn't come in such a way. He came as the suffering servant. He came as one who would give his life for many. It was unexpected. It was uh, something that people didn't quite see coming. And for some people, it just wasn't the Messiah they wanted. So with no other thing to mock him with, they go and they mock the king of the universe. And so they make him a crown, but it's a crown out of thorns. And they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. And they kneel before him and they mocked him. They said, Hail, king of the Jews without realizing the person that they were kneeling before and saying, Hail King, was the one who played a part in creation. The one who formed them, shaped them. 
And they spit on him. They took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. They put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. And to find a man and compel him to carry his cross because at this point Jesus is weak. He's bloodied. They can only embarrass him so much in such a state. They come to such a cheery place. Golgotha, place of a skull. Generously, they offer him wine to drink mixed with gall. It's not something you'd want to drink. It's not something Jesus wanted to drink. And then, of course, in verse 35, you have the most nonchalant presentation of a fact ever. And when they had crucified him, it's a simple statement. As if there was nothing to it, nailing a man to a cross. But they do it, and then they divide his garments, and of course they sit down and they watch. Other accounts are going to talk about how um, it was actually just one seamless garment. They didn't want to tear it, so they thought, let's cast lots for it. And of course, it's an interesting thing. You can get into what is casting lots, but very simply, the ancient understanding was, uh, we're going to cast the dots and let the gods decide who gets what. So even in, in casting lots, they're denying his deity by just playing nonchalantly at, at these other deities, saying, you know, whatever happens, happens. If these gods really want something to happen, something will happen. And they do what they do. And the thing is, what we may not realize is this was fairly common practice for these soldiers. This was something that would have happened. And in fact, it was, there was a reason that you crucified people. Because it, it made an impact. It was not a pleasant way to die. And for a lot of us, we've heard sermons on that. So I'm not going to go too deep into detail. But long story short, if you want to keep a people subservient to you, one of the best ways you can do it is to show people every single day the consequences of stepping out of line. In this case, here was this Jesus guy who had done something he shouldn't do. It was stirring up the people. And so, as a simple way of saying, do not step against Rome, you nailed someone to a piece of wood and you let them suffocate in full view of everyone. And you can't take them down. You don't have power to save them. The thing you can do is watch. And you do it in a place just outside the city so everyone coming in and everyone coming out can see what happens to someone who steps against? And that was the way that God chose to show His love for us. Was in sending Jesus to suffer in such a way. He's mocked. He's beaten. They take Him to a cross and they crucify Him. And you think that should be it. He's sitting there. He's dying. It's going to be the end. And it's not a pleasant way to go. It is a struggle. And a struggle all the way to the end. If that's not enough, they put a charge against Him which reads, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, which is a slight not just against Jesus, but against the Jews. Because if this is your King, there He is. But then these robbers are crucified next to him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Uh, I mentioned this the last time we went through Matthew. You, you can read over that one. The only way to imagine what it was that they were wagging their heads is to imagine your sibling looking at you across the back seat when they were just taunting you on a road trip. Right? You, you might have that picture in your head. And they just sort of do... Nah, 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 nah. They're, they're wagging their heads. They're doing something that they know is just going to just get under your skin. And here are these people who are looking at Jesus as he's dying. And they're wagging his he their heads at him and saying, Oh, you who would do this incredible thing, why don't you save yourself? If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So the people walking by are mocking him. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the ones uh, who are responsible for him being there, have to see it for themselves. And once they're there, they mock him. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
And they were acting as if this thing which we've done is evidence that God is on our side. The fact that he's on the cross and dying is a sign that he is a liar and he has no power at all. And Jesus is on the cross after he's reminded those in Gethsemane, if I needed, if I wanted to summon angels to my defense, I could, but I don't because the scriptures have to be fulfilled. And so they misunderstand the situation because they misunderstand the Scriptures. Not only that, those robbers who are crucified on his left and right reviled him in the same way. Even those put to death in the same humiliating way went out of their way to mock him. So when you hear that line, truly, This was the Son of God. And you're reading all of these things which these guards would have been seeing. It doesn't make sense. Because the Son of God does not endure these things. The priests and scribes wanted Him dead. The people wanted Him dead. He was betrayed and arrested like a common thief. His trial was a sham. He was beaten and mocked. People walking by mocked him as he fought for breath. The rebellious, sorry, the religious leaders came and mocked him. The robbers nailed beside him mocked him. Now, just a few days before, he rode into Jerusalem like a king. When you ride into a city on a donkey, you are bringing up these Old Testament pictures of a king coming back in peace because the understanding was if you came in on a war horse, you were coming in for war. If you came in on a colt, on a donkey, on this thing which was incapable of war, it was a symbol of peace. And so Jesus entering Jerusalem in that way was to say this king was coming to bring peace to his people. Just days later, he's nailed to a cross. He is the lowest of the low. He has been betrayed, suffered injustice, suffered the rejection of his people, condemnation by those who should have recognized him. He suffered violence, humiliation, mutilation, and suffering as he grows weaker and weaker with nothing but taunting, mocking, and gall to give him comfort. That is not the description of the Son of God. What is is what happens closer to his death. Matthew mentions a time period of about three hours as Jesus is suffering on the cross where it goes dark. Now some people will try to explain this as as a phenomenon, as as a, a long eclipse of some sort. We don't really know because we weren't there. Um, But Scripture indicates that it was dark, that there was something strange happening in the sky. And that happened for about three hours as Jesus is dying. At His death, this curtain in the temple is torn in two, which by the way is a thick curtain. It is meant to endure. It is meant to last. And so what happens when Jesus dies is there is an earthquake. There is a tearing of this curtain in the temple from top to bottom all the way. And so you hear the temple and people start screaming, there's something wrong, something's happened. You see the earthquake, the world <laughs> underneath you shaking as the sky is darkened, as someone shouts out and breathes his last. There's something significant about that, enough so that those who were watching him and keeping an eye on him notice that this is not the usual way we see this happen. And whether they're saying this is the Son of God or a Son of God doesn't make much difference. It is those who do not know what's going on, who are simply doing their jobs in sending Him to the cross and crucifying Him, who notice this was not a normal person. And I find it fascinating that it doesn't mention the Jews, their perception of what was going on. It simply mentions the Romans. (laughs) The thing is, I want to know the other side. I want to know what what did they think when they saw the curtain was torn in two because that can't be good. What did they think when when they heard or felt the earthquake because that's not a normal thing. What did they hear or think when Jesus is dying on the cross and the sky goes dark because that's not a usual thing. And yet, 
There's two different groups of people. One who are expecting a Messiah and one who have no expectation at all. Those who expect the Messiah reject Him and put Him to death. And those who have no reason to expect Him are in wonder and awe at the sort of death He died. Who is this person? It's two completely opposite perspectives. All based on either what they perceived or what they witnessed. One thought something about Jesus, didn't see it, and ignored the rest. The other one had no idea what to expect, saw something incredible, and went on from there. Truly, this was the Son of God. Verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, it doesn't mention much of this Joseph from Arimathea other than he's rich, that he has a tomb, that he puts Jesus in it, and then he goes after rolling a rock to the entrance of the tomb. That's That's all it mentions of him in Matthew. Because he's not the point. It was simply God's way of providing a resting place for Jesus, at least for his very short stay. But there's a lot of things here to say that Jesus had given up his life. Now, if you were to read John's account of the crucifixion, he mentions that uh, this is the day before the day of preparation. It's getting on in the day, and crucifixions, frankly, can last a long time. That's actually part of the beauty of a crucifixion. Uh, If you were to simply execute someone, it's done and over with. with. With a crucifixion, someone could suffer for two or three days. And that is the kind of publicity you want when you want to keep a people in check. Now, there's a problem in Israel. And that is, it goes back to Deuteronomy and this certain passage that talks about if you leave uh, a condemned person on a tree overnight, they are cursed by God. Now, some people are okay with that, but historically, the Israelites would not like to leave someone mounted to a piece of wood overnight, especially on the Sabbath, because on the Sabbath, it then requires work to take them down. If they die, uh, they're going to have to wait until uh, you know, the day after, and that could take some time. It could be some work. They don't want to do that. They don't want to leave them overnight. So what happens is they then get someone to go and start breaking people's knees. Sorry, this might have been more graphic than you expected. Uh, That's just how I'm a history uh, buff, so I'm sorry I get into the nitty-gritty. Either way, um, they get to Jesus and they thought, well, let's break his knees, but then they realize, oh, he's already dead which is frankly kind of remarkable. People don't die very early from these things. That was the point. And here was Jesus dead. Of course, people didn't believe it. They mentioned that he was dead and the word got around and Pilate said, no, it couldn't be. He hasn't been there very long. Long story short, they decide, let's make sure. So they take a spear and they shove it in his side. It's a real easy test. If they move, if they scream, then they're not dead. If they don't, John describes what happens next as as a miracle, as something that he had to witness to believe. And that was that the blood and the water had separated. That Jesus, when he gave up his life, did so in such a way that it wasn't a a, a lingering thing. It happened. That his death was, was 
done. Now, all that's to say, and the only reason I mention that is because later in, in this narrative, uh, those, those people who are coming to collect his body, uh, it's one of those that they would not surrender a body to someone in such a situation unless he was absolutely dead. There's no real issue except that when Pilate first hears this request for the body, he's surprised. But the reality is Jesus had given up his life. It didn't take him very long, partially because he'd been beaten to such an extent, partially because everyone that saw him mocked him, and partially because he had a job to do, and that was to give up his life. So when Jesus goes to the cross, he doesn't waste any time. He's collected, he's delivered unto uh, Joseph of Arimathea and the rest. There's also an interesting little thing here. Every time something happens in this account, the two Marys are there. Uh, when Jesus dies, Mary and Mary are there. When uh, Joseph of Arimathea comes to collect Jesus' body, Mary and Mary are there. Jesus was laid in a new tomb and a large stone was rolled to the entrance. And again, Mary and Mary are there. But then... If it wasn't enough to kill Jesus, those who are uh, those religious leaders go again to Pilate. Which at this point, you have to imagine, he's got to be sick uh, of these people. It's been back and forth. He's had to deal with this issue he didn't want to deal with. Finally, uh, against his wishes, he's dead. And then once he's dead, they come back and they say, well, hey, actually, there's something else. He did say when he was alive that he was going to die and come back in three days. So uh, we have a little problem with that. <laughs> because if he does, if he's gone and these disciples steal his body, then people are going to believe it. It's going to be worse than before. So come on, can you give us something to make sure that that doesn't happen? He says, look, you have soldiers at your disposal. Set a guard. Do what you have to do. I think he's just sick at this point of all the stuff that's going on. So he says, fine, set a guard. And they do. They seal the tomb and they keep a guard. Now, in ancient times, sealing it was fairly simple. You dipped a rope in wax and you sealed it all around the perimeter. That way, just like a wax seal when someone opened a letter, if someone moved it or tampered with it, you could see. So they had guards there. They had the temple sealed. There's really not a whole lot else they could do because you're not getting people in. It's a, it's a tomb cut out of rock. It's, it's a cave with no backside or no back entrance. It's got a big stone in front of it and it's sealed shut with guards. The thing is, they're not worried that Jesus is still alive. They're worried that his supporters still have some fight left. And the irony is, by putting through so many precautions, they only give evidence to the arguments of those who are following Jesus. Because we couldn't have gotten there. We couldn't have done that. Except, of course, something does happen. There's the day of preparation and because it's the Sabbath, because it's, it's people getting ready for the Sabbath, they can't do much. That's part of their culture. That's part of their faith. They are uh, obligated not to do work. And caring for a body was seen as work. So they come back the day after the Sabbath. And it mentions Mary and Mary. It says, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day, of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Let me read that one again because I don't think I had the proper emphasis. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I told you. 
So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them saying, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now I'm going to stop you there because there's a lot of interesting things in this portion. First off, you can mention that when Jesus laid down his life and when Jesus took it back up, there were earthquakes. That's pretty significant, right? There's, there's an earthquake when he's dead. There's an earthquake when the tomb is cracked open. Not only that, they see an angel descend from heaven. That's going to be a unique experience. And what I love is it mentions that he descends from heaven. He comes, he rolls back the stone, he sits on it. His appearance was like lightning. I don't know what that means. And his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Imagine that. You're guarding a tomb, which I imagine is fairly quiet work. And suddenly there's an earthquake and a being descends from the heavens who looks like nothing else you've ever seen before. He rolls back the stone to the tomb and he sits on it. And they don't know what to do with themselves. So it says that they were terrified and became like dead men. Which to me means that they didn't move. They trembled. They, they had nothing that they could do. And then the most interesting thing that could happen happens. He talks to the women instead of them. And the reason I think that's interesting is because he goes and he talks to them and says, do not be afraid. It doesn't mention them being so terrified that they can't move. No, those are the guards. The guards are so petrified. They, they couldn't do anything. And so the angel just speaks over them to these women and gives them very specific instructions while these guards are just petrified and watching the whole thing, powerless to do anything about it. Maybe that's just me. I find that fascinating. Picturing that in my head is <laughs> just a funny scene to play out. And yet, that's what happens. That's what Scripture tells us occurred. And he gives them instructions. He says, look, Jesus is risen. He was crucified, but he's not here anymore. And I know that you've come to see him. Specifically, they came to prepare his body for burial. They didn't have enough time after the crucifixion to do it properly. And according to their cultural, they were gonna, the cultural expectations, they had a lot of things to do before he was ready to wait in the tomb until his body decayed and they could put his bones with his ancestors. That's what they were planning on doing. So when they go... And there's this incredible thing that happens, and Jesus isn't there. What do you do with that? For them, it's exactly what the angel says. Go back and tell the disciples Jesus isn't here because he's risen. Specifically, he says, go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. They went to see a corpse, and they found an angel. They went to see the quiet disposition of a dead man and what they found was an earthquake and a person who looked like lightning and then the truth that they were going to go and find Jesus who was alive in Galilee and they'd have to go there to meet with him. So they depart quickly, exactly like the angel says, with fear and great joy. I guess that's uh, the same sort of emotions you might feel the first time you become a parent. Fear and great joy. And yet that doesn't even compare to these, these women who just heard that the Savior that they saw beaten and murdered is alive and waiting for them. So they go and they run to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. It's his first word, greetings. Hi, how are you? I just... I can't, it's so bizarre sounding because you can't imagine the sort of things they're going through. It's emotions so heightened uh, because we don't experience things like this on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, I've never experienced anything like this. <clears throat> Jesus meets them and says greetings and they come up, they take hold of his feet and they worship him. This is an otherworldly thing. It is a supernatural thing. It is not normal by any definition of the word. And Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. And then a number of things happen. 
I mean, first there's the guards. They, in verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest that all, all that had taken place. Now, there, it tells you that there's a number of people who are guarding it. We usually see pictures of about two people guarding the tomb. It's going to be more. Not all of them go in, but a number of them do. And they tell the chief priests all that had taken place. And then they assemble with the elders and they take counsel. So it's, it's this thing they thought, well, let's process this. Let's sit down together. They pay a substantial amount A sufficient sum of money, it says, to the soldiers and say, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. The easiest answer in this situation is, we fell asleep, they took him away. Which I find interesting. I I guess I should finish reading the passage here. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, that's intriguing for a number of reasons. Probably most of all, because if you were the chief priests and scribes and you hear this story, you've got one of two options. One, it's true, and we did a bad, bad thing. Or two, they had a bad, bad dream. And it all happened exactly like we thought it was going to happen. Now, what we hear about what happens next, they pay them and say, look, tell people this is what happened. I think it's because they honestly believe that's what happened. They didn't believe most of what Jesus was doing. They didn't believe most of what he was saying. In fact, Jesus said as much that they were incapable of seeing or understanding what he was doing. And I think for them, it was trying to do the best with what they had heard and thought this whole Jesus thing has gotten so out of proportion. It's, it's gotten... Just, you hear stories left and right of things that happen, and everyone's just going crazy over it. And yet, it's just this normal guy who said things he couldn't possibly be true. We took care of him. When is it going to stop? And this was the easiest solution. Tell people this is what, was, what happened. It's likely to them what happened. And the story was spread again and again. It says at least to this day which was a number of years after it would have happened. And Matthew doesn't delve too much into what happens with the disciples, but it's interesting there as well. Mary and Mary get there and they tell the disciples and they don't believe what they hear. In fact, uh, I believe it was Mark that said they thought it was an idle tale. Peter, though, intrigued, runs to go see for himself. And he gets there, the tomb is empty. And he runs back to say, yes, it's empty. It's not there. There's cloth there, the cloth that they used to cover Jesus. But he is not there. There are two who are on the road to Emmaus. They don't believe the story of what's happened. And yet they speak to someone who opens their eyes up to Scripture and it says makes their hearts burn within them, who is then revealed to be with Jesus. And as soon as he's revealed to be with Jesus, he disappears. Jesus then appears to all of them in Galilee as he promised, and yet Thomas, who sees it, doesn't believe. There's in fact a number who don't believe. Thomas, as we know him later, is called Doubting Thomas because he had to feel it for himself before he would believe. He thought it was a ghost, so he sits and he eats with them. And he remains with them a while, all while reaffirming what he had said of himself and making sure they were ready for what was to come. The Son of God had come. He had laid down his life to save his people, and he took his life back up as death submitted to his authority. And then, of course, we have that famous passage at the end as Jesus is speaking to his people. They go to Galilee, to that mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What he's preparing them for is the reality that we experience after the cross. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, we celebrate Christmas as if it's the most important holiday of the year. And in a lot of ways, we make it that. Uh, we get family together. We've got all the decorations. Uh, we've got everything we could possibly need. Easter's great. You know, you get the Easter egg hunt. You get a few other things. Maybe you get a nice ham. That was always the highlight of my family Easter was, was the honey-glazed ham with the pineapple, and you get the little cherries in the middle. You don't have any food in the crock pot right now, do you? <laughs> Sorry, I'm distracting everyone. Uh, instead, that was what we thought of when I thought of Easter, was that and chocolate and terrible candy um, because no one ever buys the good stuff for the kids on Easter. But Christmas is this, this thing that we all celebrate and we wait for each year and we save up for. And the reality is, Jesus being born was an incredible thing. But without the cross, it didn't mean anything. If Jesus simply was born and lived a normal life and then went back to be with Jesus with nothing, sorry, back to be with God with nothing ever happening, that's, that's a great story, but it doesn't do anything for us. The, the, the foundational moment in human history was when God sent Jesus to die on the cross not only that, to rise again. The reality that we remember every Easter is that we serve a risen Savior. If that weren't true, we wouldn't have any hope. The death without resurrection is meaningless, just as the miracles of a dead prophet are meaningless. But what we're reminded of each and every year is that Jesus endured suffering for us. Jesus won salvation for us. He redeemed us. He reconciled us. And we were brought back into union with God, joined together in the hope of Christ, fulfilled on the cross. They didn't know what to look for, and they didn't want to see. But the death and resurrection of Jesus are the foundation of all that we are. Jesus rose again, and we can trust in that. Jesus took up his life again, and we have life in him. The victory of Easter is that God's faithfulness and love endured even death. And if the one we follow has authority over our greatest fear, what else is there but to go boldly and to share the incredible news of this God who has loved us in so incredible a way? We couldn't ask for anything greater, anything more substantial, life-changing, purpose-giving than the gospel. Ours is the true God, the living one, the giver and sustainer of all life, and the one who has deeply loved us and gave himself for us. Death is defeated. His kingdom has come. And we serve the risen Savior.